Okay, thank you. This morning, uh, we are continuing in our Worthy series. We are going through John chapter 5 uh, for four weeks. So everybody grab a Bible. Uh, the Bibles are under the chair in front of you or under your chair if you're in the front row. We're going to be on page 727. So we're in John 5, so that's that big number 5. And then uh, we left off at 27 uh, on Family Fun Day, so we'll be at 28 today, the small number 28. And we're going to cover, I think, what is a really important truth for our culture to hear. So I'm actually going to slow down a bit today, and we're only going to go through three verses, because I think there are three really important verses, particularly the last one. And so let's dive into that. So this is Jesus talking. He's still kind of speaking to the Pharisees in the crowd. So verse 28, he says this, Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, he's talking about him, the Son of Man, and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Okay, keep it open. Let's start with verses 28 and 29, because... Uh, For those of you that have kind of grown up in church, you've been in church for a while, you're familiar with the Bible, they may have sounded even a bit odd to you. So Jesus says, look at 29, for instance. Jesus says, come out, those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. But you might be thinking, that sounds almost contradictory or the opposite of what the Bible typically teaches on who goes to heaven and who is saved. Typically we say we're saved not because of our good deeds, we're saved because of our faith. And so why does it say here that those who have done good will rise to to live? Why is Jesus saying it that way in this particular passage? Well, in part, it's because of the writing style of the disciple John. He actually writes like this a decent amount in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He pulls out these particular sayings of Jesus uh, quite often uh, in his gospel, and he's saying it a different way. What John means here is that those who have been saved by Jesus are the ones who are able to do good works. Let me show you another example of John's writing, and I think it'll actually become pretty clear if you look at this. So we're gonna go to John 15. You can either turn to it or I'll just throw it on the screen. We'll get to it pretty quickly here. In John 15, Jesus is giving a metaphor about the vine, and he says this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So if you are in Jesus, you are the one who is going to do good works, but then look at the opposite. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So this isn't any different of what the Bible normally teaches on salvation by faith. It's just a different way to express it. Okay, let's look to verse 30 now, uh, particularly that last clause. I just want to really laser in on this clause this morning. Jesus says this really important thing. He says, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. He seeks to do the will of God. Now, we actually see Jesus speak like this a number of times in the Bible. Another example would be right before he's arrested, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's he's sweating blood, and he's praying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And we see this sort of thinking from Jesus a number of times in the Bible because it's actually one of the most important ways that you and I can imitate Jesus. That you and I would say, I seek not to please myself, but to please God. In a sense, that's sort of your life aim, the purpose of your life. We say sometimes that as Christians, our purpose is to glorify God, is to live for him. Now, before we go in any deeper into this kind of main point of the message, I just want to say that I think 
Some of this message may sound uh, puzzling to some of you this morning, perhaps even frustrating, uh, and here's why. So every culture around the world has different places where God's word intersects with their culture in really gentle ways, and some places where God's word intersects with their culture in more painful ways. And I think this passage is one where God's word intersects with our culture in a bit more of a painful way. And that's because we live in right now, I'm not exaggerating, in the most self-obsessed, self indulgent, self-focused culture to ever walk upon the planet Earth. America, right? That's us. And so when we come to a biblical passage about not pleasing the self, it's gonna sound a bit foreign to us as we extrapolate the ramifications of this. It may even sound wrong to your ears at some points because it's a painful intersection point. Now, if we were in a different part of the Bible and I were to read to you a passage this morning about not murdering, you would say, okay, pastor, preach on, that's great, I get that, no problem, right? Because that's a pretty gentle intersection point of the gospel. But imagine if I were a missionary to the Vikings. Now, I'm not talking about the football team, although they they looked like they needed some help last week. I'm talking about their namesake, like a thousand years ago, right? The violent Vikings that just went on their ships murdering whatever group they came upon. Imagine I'm a missionary to them a thousand years ago and I'm preaching a message and I preach to them a message about do not murder. Well, that's not gonna go over as well as it would with this crowd, right? Because that is actually a painful intersection point of God's word with their culture. And so remember, I'm telling you this almost monthly now because I actually think less than 10% of Americans understand this very, very important point. Our current culture that we live in, our Western American culture of 2022 is not king. It is not the final authority on truth. Every culture has a unique set of beliefs and they all must come under the authority of scripture even where it's a painful intersection point for that particular culture. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about not pleasing ourselves as Jesus says, because at the end of the day, I think most of the time we typically want to be in charge. We want to wear the crown, right? We wanna say, at the end of the day, I'm king or I'm queen and I'm going to decide how I live my life, what I do, I'm gonna make my decisions. And we do this as Christians, I'm not just talking to non-Christians, we put this on multiple times a day, saying yes, yeah, you're the king, God, I get it, but for this point in my life, I'm going to wear the crown. But if you do that, I must, I must warn you about something. If you're going to take the crown, I urge you, I know we don't normally do this, but read the terms and conditions first. Because the Bible communicates throughout all of its pages that you weren't meant to wear this crown. And if you put it on, the Bible tells us this in Romans 1 actually, that God will give you over to it and it will slowly crush you. Because as a human, if you wear this and you say, I'm gonna take control of my life, I'm gonna decide what's moral, what's right, I'm gonna make my own decisions, what happens is it eventually will begin to crush you because you can't bear the weight of this crown. It's not meant for you, 
It's meant for the king. And yet we want to wear it. We want to wear it a lot. And so what I want to do is I actually want to look at three of what I think are the most common temptations for where we want to put on this crushing crown. So let's take a look at the first one. Here's the first temptation. I would just call it our plans. It's decision-making. You think about it this way. From a very early age, we ask young children, and then we ask teens. We say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Hey, when you get to college, what do you want to, what do you want to major in? We have these conversations all the time, and that's because for a lot of us, we, we feel like our work is going to be one of the major ways that we find a self-fulfillment. Now, I was having a conversation with one of my kids last week, and we were having this you know, classic career talk, and one of them, they said back to me, they said, Dad, I just can't decide. There are so many choices. And I said, well, you better decide. No, I'm just kidding, I didn't say <laughs> I said, listen, listen, you don't, you, A, you don't need to decide right now, and B, at the end of the day, you just need to do what God calls you to do. Not what anyone else tells you what to do, or even what you think is best. And again, you may go, mm, that last part doesn't sound quite right to me. And that's because pleasing God first is a foreign idea to our current culture. You know, I would tell you as a pastor, I've watched many, many people whom I see God is calling them to maybe leave a corrupt company, uh, maybe to go into ministry, maybe to move to a different place. He's calling to them, but they say, God, that sounds, I just don't know. If I did that, I wouldn't be making enough money. It would be uncomfortable, it would be scary. They say, God, that sounds too hard and I can't bear the weight of a hard life. But do you know what you really can't bear? You can't bear the weight of the crushing crown. The weight of trying to make all of your life decisions yourself. Think about this, people everywhere in Western societies, particularly in America, are being crushed right now by what? What's the number one thing that's probably crushing most people? I would say it's actually anxiety. In part, because rather than accepting and surrendering to the direction of the king, they have taken the crushing crown and they are trying to figure out everything in their life for themselves, and it is crushing them. And I would say to you that God has given you a better way, my friend. The life of a Christ imitator is one where we, like Christ, we say, I seek not to please myself, but to please God. That's verse 30. The life of a Christ imitator, that's a Christian, is one where we say, God, I don't know where to go. You know where to go. You wear this. You tell me where to go. I trust you. You know best. And he does. Life works so much better when you don't wear the crown over your life. Okay, let's take a look at another example here. Next example, common area that we are tempted to just grab this thing and put it back on. I would say putting ourselves first. Now, I actually think this is maybe the least obvious of the three, in part because our culture has raised us from infancy on axioms like, you just need to do what's best for you. I cannot tell you how many times as a kid I was told that exact same thing. Hundreds of times, and yet that's not what the Bible says. Jesus says, I seek not to please myself. 
You know, in 2022, uh, we put ourselves first all the time, but then we excuse it and we rationalize it by labeling it as self-care. Huh, you just nervously laugh because you know I'm right. But some of you, 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 you also feel uncomfortable with that, so let me just explain myself. I think self-care is great if it's defined properly, right? If we're just talking about uh, eating healthy, if we're talking about exercising, then absolutely, you know, the Bible says that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit, so you ought to take care of it. If we're just talking about resting, then absolutely, the Lord came down and modeled the Sabbath for us. Uh, even in intense seasons of life, right? Taking care of yourself is so important. A little over a year ago, uh, I preached a message on Elijah in depression. And we studied how the very first thing that God said to Elijah when he was depressed was, you just need to eat something and take a nap. Okay? And so sometimes, yeah, taking care of your body, that's important. But that's, all that is, that's just handing the crown to God and saying, you know what, I see in your word that this is, I need to take care of this, and so I'm trusting you with your plan. I think the problem is, the way many people use the self-care term today looks more like self-indulgence than self-care. It looks more like this. It's like, you know, it's a Friday night and you're going, oh, I know that my friend from house groups needs help moving tomorrow, but I'm just so tired. I had like a crazy week. And so I think I would just rather sleep in. Gotta do some self-care, right? It's like you've had a crazy week and you just feel wiped, and you know you're behind on your Bible reading plan, you feel like the Lord's calling you to like catch up, be in his word, and you say, you know what, I'm just, what I need right now is just to binge watch this show and eat a pint of cookie dough ice cream. <laughs> Self-care, right? And I think what many of us are doing is we're making these sort of daily, weekly decisions by a philosophy that essentially says, I just need to do what's best for me and what pleases me. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Imitate me. I seek not to please myself, but the one who sent me. Jesus' whole life was about not putting himself first. Mark 10, 45, he says this, for even the son of man, he's talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So yes, he's taking care of himself. Sometimes we see him just go off to rest, but lots of times we see the people come to him, he's exhausted and he serves them and he heals them because he's not living by a rubric that says I have to put myself first. If Jesus was living by the code, you just do what's best for you, then he never would have went to the cross. And so again, God's word urges you to imitate the life of Jesus. And if you do that, I'm actually telling you, the upside down kingdom of Jesus will surprise you. And one of the ways I think this is true is I, as I just go through kind of the Rolodex in my own life, and I think through what were the like, deepest moments of joy in my life? Those moments of joy did not come from times where I was just selfishly consuming for myself. And I bet it's probably the same in your, own life, in your own life. They came from moments when I was, I was serving, I was giving, I was loving another person. And God moved in a, in a mighty way. Don't seek to please yourself first. Seek to please God. That's what the text says. Okay, let's take a look at a third one. Third one is this. This is another area where we're just tempted to grab it and just do it our own way. Personal gratification. You might even call this personal pleasure. This is a tough one. Uh, our culture right now is extremely confused in this area, especially when it comes to sex. 
You know, rather than sex being this life-giving way to serve a spouse within the commitment of marriage, like the Bible describes it, uh, sex has become something that people are randomly consuming, not serving, consuming for their own personal pleasure, often with no commitment, or sometimes without even a relational connection. And I think even for the Christian, our temptation to grab the crown here is strong. Okay, church, let's not pretend like this is a room full of holy and perfect people, okay? We feel temptations. Even Paul says, I burn with a desire. The temptation is there. And in our hearts, I think if we're honest, there are many of us in this room that we think when it comes to this area of pleasure, we think, you know what? I would be happier if I had the crown on here. And I just ignored the Bible. And I did what I wanted to do. And we look at it and sometimes we just, we hold the crown in our hands and we think, and what's so bad about pornography anyway? I'm not really hurting anyone, am I? And we begin to think like, and why, why, do, why, why do we have to be with one person our whole life? Maybe it would be better. Let me just tell you, as your pastor, as a teacher of the word, you cannot bear the weight of putting on this crown. It will crush you. Trust in this, not in yourself. Let me give you another example of this that I think is so common in our culture. This is a hard one, but I think it's, it's important to talk through. I would say perhaps the most common or frequent type of pastoral meeting that I've had to do in my almost two decades of ministry have been around couples living together before marriage. I think that's in part because at our church, our pastors don't officiate weddings of people uh, if they're living together because God's word tells us not to do that. Uh, that's not his way. The marriage, celebra- the marriage ceremony is to be a celebration of that couple coming together in a covenant in, in one flesh. And I think I've had to do a lot of those meetings because this is just another really painful intersection right now of God's word into our modern culture. It wasn't 50 years ago, but it it is so today. And listen, I know I'm not ignorant of what's happening around me. So I know, for instance, that 86% of Americans disagree with me on this. And the Bible, they disagree with the Bible too. 86% disagree when it comes to this topic of cohabitation. But listen, my job as a teacher of the word isn't to do what 86% of people want me to do. It's to teach what God wants me to teach. And even if there's a part of you right now, and for some of you this is so happening, you feel a little like, yeah, but I don't know, and you feel the frustration, I would tell you, again, we're so cultural-centric right now. So again, step outside of your culture. Go back a thousand years. If I were preaching to the Vikings a thousand years ago, you wouldn't want me to say, okay, I see that 86% of you actually think murder is fine. And so I'm gonna go with the 86%, it's by far the majority, and so I'm just gonna tell you that murder is okay. If I did that and you heard me say that, you'd say, David Michael Sorn, that is wrong. You can't say that. You'd say, David, there is a higher truth than their culture. And I'd say, well, there is here too. 
And so I've had plenty of conversations over the years with people about that higher truth. And I'll try and very gently show them what God's word says about coming together as one flesh in the book of Genesis, about what it says about not having even a hint of sexual immorality in Ephesians 5, about keeping the marriage bed pure in Hebrews 13, and so on. And if I'm meeting with Christians, and sometimes I'm just not, but if I'm meeting with Christians, what they'll most often say is they'll say, okay, I see it, I, David, we see what the Bible says. But almost always they will say this to me. They will say, but we just can't bear the financial weight of getting married right now. And we definitely can't bear the financial weight of of moving out and living apart right now. And I will say, no, what you can't bear is the weight of the crushing crown. Because making the decision that you're making is crushing Not simply because it's unwise, and by the way, every single major study on cohabitation, Christian and non-Christian, says that cohabitation decreases the chances of you having a successful marriage. So it's, it's not only crushing because of that, making that decision is crushing because it's going against God. And it's not just this topic. I mean, we can zoom out from this. I I think that all of us in our lives, we have five, maybe 10 moments in life, key moments of your life, where you just have to decide, am I going to let God wear this crown over my life, even when it's really, really hard and inconvenient to let him do so? Will I let him wear it then? And my friends, those decisions in those five or 10 key moments of your life, those are the decisions that will define the trajectory of your walk with God. And I'm urging you from God's word, I'm urging you to fear the Lord here. Fear the implications of taking the crown from him. Because when you do that, when you say, I know that you say that, but... When you do that, you're not, it's not just that you're saying, I'm gonna live to please myself here. What also is happening is the mutiny of your heart. Taking the crown is you saying, God, I don't trust you. Not here. And see, it's that, that, that step right there that will cause your heart to then want to hide from God. I mean, that's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve, right? They essentially rip the proverbial crown off the tree, and what do they do next? They hide. They hide. And so what do you do? What do you, if you, what do, you do if you're there even right now? You're here this morning, you're sitting in these seats, you're a Christian, But in truth, you have stolen the crown and basically it's on your head right now. And I would guess that if you're here and that's happening, you maybe feel that your faith isn't even that strong right now. And maybe in part because you've been hiding him. You've been, you're here, but in your daily actual life, you've essentially been avoiding God for a little while now. What do you do? I would say this, if that's you, I want you to think through a thought exercise. I want you to think back to the days of the kings and the queens. 
I want you to imagine there's someone who enters into the palace and they see the crown of the king sitting on a table like this and they walk into the palace and it appears like no one is around. And so they walk over and they steal the crown and they put it on their head and they see the throne and they go and they sit on the throne and they make themselves comfortable. People start coming in and they even begin ordering out decrees on how things should go. And let's say as they're doing that, the king himself with his powerful court, they enter into the palace and they see you with the stolen crown on the throne. Now in those days in history, what was the penalty for usurping the throne? What was the penalty for treason? Death. Okay, knowing that, and recognizing that the Bible teaches that Jesus is king. He's not just a king, he is the king of kings. Guess what? The king of kings has just caught you, you, red-handed, stealing his crown over the last month, maybe the last year of your life. He has caught you. And the onlookers, In the palace, they are calling out to the king and they are saying, sinner, sinner, you have sinned, treason, death. And the king of kings responds. And he says, you are right. They have sinned. And the punishment is death. The wages of sin is death. But then the king says, but in my love for them, the justice will be my death. And Jesus Christ steps off of heaven's throne and he comes to earth and he dies in the place of us, the crown thieves. And so I bring us back to our main question of this text of verse 30, because this text says, It basically asks the question of us, why in the world would any of us in this room want to live counter-cultural like this? In a culture where everybody just gets to do what pleases themselves, what makes their bodies happy, whatever they want to do, why in the world would anyone in this room say, no, in all of my decisions, in all of my ways, in how I live my life, I seek not to please myself, but my God who made me. Why would we do that? Why? And the more I pondered that exact question, the more I thought this. I thought, and what should I be doing with a crown? Like, what do I know? It's like when the Lord addressed Job, after Job pridefully thought he had figured some stuff out about suffering and had given the answers back to God, the Lord speaks to him and he says, just wondering, were you there when I created the universe? Like what in the world could I possibly know that would justify me, David Soren from Cambridge, Minnesota, stealing the king's crown and doing things my own way? In my ignorance, on my head, this crown will crush me. It's not meant for my head. What should I be doing with a crown? I will tell you, I mean, I don't know about your life, but every time that I have stolen the crown and I've said, God, I'm going my own way. I know you say this, but I'm gonna do my own thing. Every time it has ended in crushing defeat. 
What should I be doing with a crown? I say no, my friend, don't take it anymore. Don't take it, you can't bear it. There is only one who can bear it and it is the one who never sinned and his name is Jesus Christ the King. And so you can give him the crown and you can say, you wear this over my life. You tell me what to do. I will walk your way and I trust you because you are sovereign, you are wise, and I trust you because of your love. And that matters. See, because Jesus Christ is not some authoritarian leader. He is not looking at you and saying, the crown is mine, you will do what I say. That's not the story of this book, it's not. And it is absolutely critical that you brand that gospel truth into your heart. Because the fact that we confuse that very thing, I think is why so many of us take the crown from him. Okay, think of it this way. In history, and there are so many examples of this, okay, if there's a bad authoritarian leader, right, one who only loves themselves and not the people, what happens in history? The people revolt. There's revolution, they fight to take the crown away. Why? Because they know that they can lead better than that selfish king. But that's not our king. That's not our king. See, if you see him, if you could truly see him, in his majesty, in his love for you, the only thing that you would say to him is, and what should I be doing with a crown? Because goodness, he saw me You can say, he saw me walking into his palace and stealing his crown. And it was after that that he gave his life for mine. That's who my king is. And that, that, my friends, is why you can say, I seek not to please myself, but the king who died for me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much uh, just for... Your love, it is, uh, it is incredible. You don't just come down and order us what to do. You came and you died for us. And we know you are good. We know you are loving. And so God, increase our trust. As a church, increase our trust that we could say, I don't know. I don't want to please myself. I don't want to trust myself. I want to trust the good, good father, the good, good king. Lord, teach us to trust you and walk in your ways. We love you. We thank you that you died for us, even though we deserve it not. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.